everyone, I uh, recently was uh, moved and in a way inspired to write uh, a piece about the current pandemic. Uh, many have understandably found themselves in difficult times, whether it's unemployment, taking care of ill family members, or really any other event in our life. And you may be listening to this perhaps months or even years after the pandemic actually ends, in which case it'll still be relevant for you to you considering um, the type of hardships that you're facing at this time in your life. You're probably recommended this uh, podcast episode perhaps by a friend, by me, or you might have stumbled upon it. But when hard times fall on us, it's important to have the right perception of reality in order to survive and find a way to grow out of it. So I hope you can find some inspiration, but more importantly, a way to alter how you perceive your current situation. Empowerment, empowerment comes from being able to, uh, to, to take control of what you can. And the only thing we can truly control is our perceptions. The author of Viktor Frankl once said that we are no longer able to change the situation we are challenged to change ourselves. You see, our mind immediately recognizes that quote as something profound before it even knows what it means. Frankel uh, was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, and he survived life in a Nazi in, the, in a Nazi concentration camp, the most famous one, Auschwitz. And he wrote a book called *Man's Search for Meaning* to describe his daily life as a prisoner, and introduced his uh, psychotherapeutic method, uh, which involved identifying some purpose uh, uh, for one's life to feel positive about, and then immersively imagining that outcome. According to Frankel, uh, the way a prisoner imagined the future actually affected his longevity. In other words, the way a person in a Nazi concentration camp viewed their future actually affected whether they were going to survive. Now, to survive, a lot of prisoners found humor and comedy, which was uh, which made it helpful to make it through another day, kind of joking about life and death, because, you know, what else could you do in a Nazi concentration camp other than find some humor in it because everything else has been stripped away from you? Humor, more than anything else, uh, can really pull us out of the emotional intensity of a situation and rise out of it, even if it's just for a few seconds. I personally have experienced this uh, in operating rooms uh, when I was a device rep and even when I was a medical student. Uh, even in surgery, very intense surgery, uh, the staff found ways to make jokes and to lighten a situation up. Now, in the Nazi concentration camps, Aside from humor, the other thing that helped with survival was curiosity. And kind of a dark curiosity. Curiosity as to why things happened and whether whether you'd be able to survive the consequences. Franker, Frankel uh, wrote that uh, he had experienced this kind of curiosity before as a fundamental reaction towards certain strange circumstances. When his life was once endangered uh, by a climbing accident, he, he felt only one sensation at that critical time, and that was curiosity. Curiosity as to whether he would actually survive and come out of it alive, or would he fracture a skull or have some kind of other injury. 
Now, in the following weeks, uh, when he discovered this in, Nazi, in, in Auschwitz, he was surprised by the amount of punishment his mind and body was able to endure. And despite being subject to a combination of work exhaustion, starvation, forced labor, sleep deprivation, filth, shit, freezing cold, his body actually endured and carried on. And what was more strange was that the prisoners who seemed physically strong and robust and tough and healthy, they actually uh, collapsed a lot faster and died before the smaller and I guess you can say seemingly weak prisoners. Frankel figured that although sensitive individuals might suffer more physically, they might have a psychological edge. And what he figured was that they had an inner life to draw on that nobody could access except them, a place where they could retreat from the terrible surroundings of life to an inner riches and spiritual freedom, all within the confines of their own skull. Now, since suffering was a daily occurrence in the camp, um, the way an individual interpreted this suffering was extremely, extremely important. Now, while one approach is retreating to an inner sanctuary, another helpful approach was reimagining the circumstances of reality in a very different way. Uh, those of you who have watched the movie Life is Beautiful, that was a great example of one. So in the movie, uh, which is an old movie, uh, the main character, uh, the protagonist, Guido Orifis, a Jewish Italian shop, uh, bookshop owner, Funny enough, he's a bookshop owner, uh, uses uh, his creativity and imagination to protect his son from the horrors of life in Nazi concentration camp. And the way he did that was trying to make daily survival in a Nazi concentration camp a game. Literally, that is literally what he did. And um, if you watch the movie, a German soldier enters their quarters and asks who can speak German, and he lied and said he could. And when he translates the Germans order, German soldiers' order, orders um, about the Nazi camp, about who's going to be killed and how and what, he made, up, made it up and said, you know, we're playing a game and uh, these German soldiers are here to enforce the game. They're going to be very mean and, and spit on you and everything, but that's part of the game. Uh, you get extra points for uh, making it through the day, not eating food. You lose points if you whine or cry. And he did this and made life in a Nazi concentration camp, literally a game to protect his son. So suffering, suffering was a constant in these camps. You were going to suffer, but to what extent, that was really up to you. Um, and how that's possible is that the suffering was based on how an individual interpreted the suffering. So if they could find a way to give meaning to the suffering that they gained, uh, they were able to also gain the ability to fill up their drained mental and emotional resources while also strengthening their inner selves. And, you know, that could be done either by having a strong religious faith, you know, thinking that some divine creator, God, Jesus, Buddha, Allah, whatever you believe in, um, gave them an inner peace uh, in the afterlife or a way out in their current situation, or even having a current drive, uh, such as being able to survive in order to be, you know, in order to see a loved one after the war ended. Um, Either way, it was it was it was something that ensured survival. A German philosopher, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, who wrote *Beyond Good and Evil*, had a very popular quote, maybe his most popular, 
And his quote says that a person who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. So if you have a why, you could bear any how. Well, let's take that concept a little bit uh, further in terms of having a why. Now, I'm going to describe something to you. Imagine, Imagine that throughout your life, you never ignored a mistake that entered, whether it was your fault or not. Every single mistake that entered your life, you did not ignore it. You tried it in every way to right it, whether it was yours or not. And in doing so, you pushed yourself to make that correction. You corrected mistakes. The question is, would you suffer from all the trouble you had to take responsibility for? Would you constantly be anxious? Would you be fearful? Would you be depressed? So another book, uh, another book, amazing book, but again, a very daunting and scaring one, and it will rip the fabric of your reality open, uh, called The Gulag Archipelago, uh, explores this theme. So this book, it'll, it'll shock you to your core, especially when you read about the atrocities committed in, in the book, and then realize that the whole book is actually not fiction. It, it all happened. So Here's, here's a scenario, and I want you to picture this. Imagine it's the end of World War I and you, or World War II, and you just finished defending your country against the Nazis, serving as a two-time decorated Soviet Union soldier. And somehow, somehow in the cold, even with a poorly prepared army, you manage to win the war. You return home to the Soviet Union, AKA Russia, for those of you who are very, very young and had poor uh, lessons in history, that's okay, don't blame yourself. Um, so you return home to your country and along with your comrades, you are immediately arrested because you've been exposed to potentially Western propaganda and you're humiliated, stripped of your rank and charged by you know, the, the charges of like spreading anti-Soviet propaganda and, con- and conspi- consp- conspiring against the state. So then you're dragged off to prison and you watch through your jail cell as your entire country celebrates this victory in the great patriotic war. But then, but then it gets worse. It gets much worse. You're sentenced to eight years of hard labor where you are worked nearly to death. And then because that's just not enough. You get cancer while you're in the camp. This is the story of the author, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, a decorated captain that was sentenced to prison for eight years for criticizing Stalin in a letter and the Soviet government in private letters. And while he was in prison, he observed prisoners, guards, and everyone in between to make a surprising discovery that everyone played a role in contributing to the creation of the Soviet prison camps. And these camps were brutal. Uh, You literally were sent off to break rocks, construct railroads, and build these insane projects in the cold Siberian country. Um, And so Solzhenitsyn realized something. He realized that this terrible situation uh, was as bad as it gets. It did not get worse than being enslaved in a constant uh, concentration slash labor uh, uh, work work camp where you're worked to death by your own country 
So he wondered how, how the hell did he get there? And the easy answer, the easy answer is, of course, that Stalin was a terrible monster and he did this and it was not his fault. But the problem is um, that didn't leave him with much to do, right? Thinking that it's not my problem, so it's not my fault, that didn't help. And Solzhenitsyn felt that this answer, while likely true, didn't really give him anything to do aside from just rot away in prison with no meaning. Again, going back to the theme from Viktor Frankl's book about tying meaning to something, to your suffering. So identifying as a victim of fate wasn't going to help him survive or gain any kind of spiritual power over the people abusing him. And since he had a lot of time on his hand, he he decided actually to play a game. And this was, here's the game. The game was, the reasons that things happened wasn't because of fate, but because of something I didn't do. So, so what did he do? Well, if you decide that everything that's happened to you wasn't because of faith, but because of something that you decided not to do, or I guess perhaps do, he went back over his entire life every day. He went through every detail, every event, and tried to remember every time he made the mistake of letting something go or didn't do what he should have done. He based this not necessarily off of any moral code because, you know, keep in mind, this is Soviet Union, Russia, and there really wasn't any morals in Russia during this time. But his intuition, his, he uses intuition to guide him, to feel that he had not done something right, you know, to, to use that as his guiding compass. And in going back through his memory, he recalled and remembered a lot of people he really admired. And, and these people were incredibly they were they were fucking tough and pure and you could plant these people that he remembered in in the worst circumstances and they wouldn't even bend they were literally incorruptible and he also saw a few people like this in the camp he was in that no matter how brutal the guards were how dire the circumstances were they never broke even though they were going to be killed they didn't even bend Nothing would corrupt them. Nothing would even touch their mind. And this was a remarkable thing to observe because it just doesn't get any worse than where he was at. A concentration camp in the middle of sub-zero winter Russia being worked and starved to death by the country that he just went to war for just to satisfy the grand vision of a brutal dictator like Stalin. But even in these circumstances, Solzhenitsyn found people who would manifest admirable qualities that would just leave you in absolute awe. Even in these circumstances, he found people like that. And he discovered where, where in his life he didn't do what was right. So he decided to take responsibility and learn from these kind of people. So the conclusion he reached was that when one person decides to take responsibility and stop lying, that one person can bring down a tyranny. And despite his terrible experience, he refused to turn against God or man, even though he had every reason to do so. And instead, he wrote secretly every night, documenting everything. And this resulted in a volume of books, but the main book being the Gulag Archipelago, which is a major factor in helping to bring down Soviet, the Soviet Union. Now, the book gets published when, she, when, when he gets out of prison, he get, the book gets published. But while the book receives a lot of praise nationally and internationally, once again, he struck with tragedy. The secret police, the KGB, sees the manuscript of his next book, and it is only published in the West. So it becomes more and more popular in the West. It's not even published in his own home country. And it continues to spread 
and be published in the West. The Nobel uh, Prize in Literature in 1970 was awarded to him for the ethical force for which he has pursued the indispensable traditions of Russian literature. And the Soviet authorities, upon seeing all this, were just absolutely enraged. And they ordered the secret police to try and poison him. So he escaped, and when that failed, he was expelled from the Soviet Union, stripped of his citizenship, and forced to take residency in a completely different society, both strange and resistant to his story. Years pass, and the Soviet Union eventually collapses, and he finally returns home to have his citizenship restored. Then he continued to write and speak in his homeland until his death in 2008, and a year later, in 2009, the Gulag Archipelago becomes mandatory reading by those responsible for having established the national school curriculum in Russia. This impossible victory becomes complete. When I, when I read this and I think about the story, I just get goosebumps every time. So, as Frankel put it, uh, a person's search for meaning, uh, a person's search for meaning is the primary motivation of life and not a secondary rationalization of instinctual drives. There's nothing more effective in helping one survive in the worst conditions than knowing that there is meaning to one's life. If we think back to Solzhenitsyn's story, we can find a, a metaphor there that we're all victims of our own tyranny just as we are victims of someone else's tyranny. So rather than accept things just to say that, oh, it's bad luck, what would happen if we confront them head on? There is an idea that mental health is based on a certain degree of tension, the tension between what you have already achieved and, and what you ought to accomplish. Or you can perhaps, maybe you can think of it like as, what you are and what you want to become. Everyone has their own specific mission in life to carry out, which demands fulfillment. Being a great spouse, a loving parent, a responsible employee, maybe a resilient entrepreneur. Ultimately, the first mission is who we are in the movie that is our life. And how do you end a hard day's you know, work or a very, very strenuous and difficult day uh, maybe when you weren't disciplined, maybe you didn't do what you were supposed to do and you didn't do what was right. You don't do it by whipping yourself with negative motivation and insults. You wouldn't do that to other people. You wouldn't do that to somebody you care about. So why do that to yourself? You have to start by doing this by reaffirming your self-respect. While having a lot of love and faith for yourself is, is definitely very important, and having some self-esteem is, yes, it's, it is an important thing, you also have to have self-respect in knowing that there's more to you, that there's a higher expectation to meet, and that you can do it. This emphasis on responsibility is found in a proverb I'd like to read to you. In that, live as if you were living already for the second time and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you're about to act now. Viktor Frankl introduces this concept of logotherapy at the end of his book. And logotherapy is a concept based on the premise that uh, the primary motivational force in life, uh, or primary motivational force of an individual is to find meaning in life. So rather than the power 
uh, rather than having a power pleasure, logotherapy just believes that upon the belief that striving to find meaning in life is the primary, most powerful, motivating, and driving force in human beings. And the best way to explain this is a very simple analogy between an eye specialist or an ophthalmologist and a painter. Logotherapy is more about acting as a eye doctor or an ophthalmologist than a painter. A painter, a painter is going to try and convey a picture to you of the world as he or she sees it, right? They're going to paint something and they're going to focus you on you know, certain things, it's subjective. An ophthalmologist, being more objective, tries to enable you to see the world as it really is. So logotherapy is about widening and broadening the visual field so that the whole spectrum of potential meaning becomes conscious and visible. And according to logotherapy, you can discover this meaning just by doing three different things. Creating a work or, or doing a deed, that's number one. Number two, experiencing something or encountering someone, and number three, the attitude you take toward unavoidable suffering. And I think a great example of number three is if you look at the Stoics, the great Stoics, Stoics of the ancient past, when they would you know, uh, expose their body to, let's say, ice cold water, or they fasted, or they did all these things, it was pretty much controlled and scheduled suffering, so that when it inevitably suffering occurred that was out of your hands or out of their hands they were stoic they were resilient so to wrap up in the worst circumstances life often feels like it's happening to us however what i what i always try to remind myself and others is that we have the power of perception to decide that everything is happening for us no matter how bad it is including being in a Nazi concentration camp. And there's a way to find meaning in that. Your great ancestors, our great ancestors, they were very strong, smart and capable people. They were a lot stronger than you and I, and definitely a lot smarter. Each generation found a way to survive, and all those hundreds of years of your ancestors have accumulated into you today. Listen to my voice carefully when I say this, that there is potential and opportunity everywhere if you choose to see it. The unique human potential that at its absolute best can transform any personal tragedy into triumph and one's shitty predicament into achievement. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. In the concentration camps, Frankel and Solzhenitsyn watched and witnessed some of their comrades and fellow prisoners behave like absolute monsters while others behave like absolute saints. A human has both sides of the potentials in them. So do you. Within you, there is there's God and there is Satan. There's a monster and a saint. There's tragedy and triumph. But which one we actually decide to actualize, to make real, should depend on our own decisions and not our conditions. And with that, I hope I've given you something to think about and reflect on. Take these lessons, take these words, make them your own, steal them. And I hope you do something valuable and worthwhile with them.
And until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of The Mind Loom. For questions that you'd like to submit, please email mindloomboom at gmail.com. That's mindloomboom at gmail.com.